can see, is the divided kingdom the most notorious king? Part two of our sermon series. What does the word notorious mean? Is it generally a good thing or a bad thing? Generally bad. It could be, it could be good, but most of the time it's bad. If you're notorious, that means you're famous or well-known typically for a bad deed or for something that you did. Like we can think back to Osama bin Laden, notorious terrorist leader that was responsible for the attacks on our country with 9-11. What are some other notorious characters in history that come to your mind? Hitler, yeah. Henry, was that what you were gonna say? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Pace to sit close, I guess, right? <laughs> Other notorious names, we can think of Genghis Khan, Stalin, okay, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. There's <laughs> another benefit of sitting close. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you a, a disclaimer. We're talking about a notorious in a bad sense king today. So the story is not going to have a fairy tale ending. In fact, sadly, most of the kings that we're going to study in this series will not have happy endings, but some of them will have a positive outcome. But I tell you what, I can learn from bad lessons perhaps more than I do sometimes from good. Uh, so we're going to learn, even though the stories are a little depressing, we're going to learn some positive lessons that will help our lives not to turn out like theirs. Amen? So I, I've, I've said he's the most notorious. We could probably point to other kings that did some things that are more disgusting to us, but I want you to see the biblical evidence here. After King Jeroboam, who we dis are discussing today, died, after he died, again and again and again and again, the Bible points back to his sins because he was one of the founding fathers of the wickedness of the nation. Look at this first verse, 1 Kings 15.30, because of the sins of who? Jeroboam, etc., etc. It's referring to the judgments that fell upon the nation. In verse 34, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of who? Jeroboam. So this next king, he was bad. He was bad like Jeroboam was bad. And in the sin by which he had made Israel to sin. And I'm not going to read all these, but every single one of these is pointing to how bad King Jeroboam was. When you want me to stop and read one, just say stop. And stop? Okay. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And all like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. This is in reference to the judgment that fell upon him. Because Ahab was so wicked, like Jeroboam, he was going to bring disaster upon him. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of who? Jeroboam. Verse after verse after verse, we see pointing to Jeroboam. So when we think about Notoriety, Jeroboam gets the prize for being the most notorious. It just keeps going. 
There are 23 different passages I pulled here uh, for your entertainment. And that's it. You can look them all up on your own. So are we getting the picture? This is not going to be a happy story, but we're going to learn some good things from it. So let's go see how it all started. Open up your Bibles or your smartphones or turn in your memory if you've memorized the book of 1 Kings. Right. You know, there's a little girl for whom that is not a joke. She's a pathfinder. She's probably about 17 now, but she's memorized the entire Bible. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, our minds are capable of a lot more than we think they are. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, how it all got started. How did Jeroboam even become king? Look at verse 26. We're here in the story of Solomon. Solomon, as you know, by this point, he had so many women in his life, and he accepted the gods of his wives and concubines, and he led his nation down a very bad path. But, but actually, let's look at verse 23, because God's trying to correct him. He's trying to prompt him to turn back to the Lord. And so verse 23 of 1 Kings 11 says, God raised up against Solomon another adversary. And this is very interesting because in Hebrew it's the word Satan, what we'd say Satan. God raised up a Satan, not literal Satan, an adversary because that's what Satan means. And Satan that we refer to is the greatest adversary. But God raised up an adversary, not because he hated Solomon, but because he wanted to try and get Solomon to repent. But it didn't work. It didn't happen. And so finally we get to verse 26. After multiple satans, multiple adversaries are raised against Solomon. And it says, also Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeradah, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here's the account, the next verse, of how he rebelled. Solomon had built all the supporting terraces and filled the gap in the wall the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. I'm reading from the NIV today. That means he was a good guy, or he was a, a well-respected individual to begin with. He was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. So actually, we discussed last time how Solomon had conscripted laborers, a.k.a. slaves. Jeroboam, he was so good at what he was doing that Solomon said, hey, you should be one of the supervisors. So he got to be a supervisor of all of his fellow country people working and, and, and supporting Solomon in his building projects. But then verse 29, about that time Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him along the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing. He took it off, probably had something on underneath, don't be worried. And what did he do with it? He tore it. Now, how many pieces? Twelve pieces. How many tribes were there? There were twelve, essentially, tribes. He tears it into twelve pieces, and then he said, verse 31, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem... Verse 33, skipping ahead, I will do this because they have forsaken me. Um, just before that, it says, for 
David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, I'm not going to give you all of them, just ten of them. Even after David had passed along, even after Israel was disregarding the covenant that they had made with God, God was still saying, you know what, I'm going to be faithful even if you're unfaithful to me. And you get to keep, you being, the, being David's line. Get, David's line gets to keep two, kingdom, two tribes, but you, Jeroboam, you get ten. And he's saying, I'm going to do this, verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept the statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. So, from the very beginning, Jeroboam was told, you get to be king over ten tribes. Why? Because they weren't being faithful. Because of disobedience, you get a chance yourself. But because of David's obedience, his family line gets to hold on to a couple of tribes. So from the very beginning, it was very clear to Jeroboam that God can't bless you as a king if you are disregarding him and not worshiping him and following him. So he knew that. It was clear to him from the very beginning, even before he became king. Now, as you can imagine, when Solomon heard about this, and we don't know why because, or how he did, because there were just two people in the field, but maybe Jeroboam couldn't quite keep it to himself. Like, hey, I'm going to be king, ten tribes. It started to spread, and the Bible says in verse 40, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, right? So, so he's, he flees. But before that, in verse 37, the prophet issued a, an encouragement, a warning to him. He said, however, as for you, Jeroboam, I will take you and you will rule over all over that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. And if you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. So there was given this conditional prophecy to, to Jeroboam. If you serve me, if you follow me, it's going to be good for you. And he saw what happened if he didn't be faithful. So then Solomon says, well, I want to kill you. I don't like the fact that you're doing these things. Fortunately, Solomon repented at the very end of his life. But Jeroboam didn't want to live with a death threat and constantly be worried. So he goes down, as we saw last week, he goes to Egypt. He hangs out with King Shishak, who would later come and invade the southern tribes. So he's down there in Egypt, and then he gets word, chapter 12, that Solomon is dead, and Rehoboam, his son, has taken his place. And the northern tribes were saying, come, we want you to come speak to the king for us. And last week we saw Rehoboam did not listen to the good advice. He listened to the bad advice of his, his peers, people he'd grown up with. And the northern tribes said, well, if that's how you're going to govern, we don't want any part of you. We're going home. And they said to Jeroboam, we want you to govern us. And how many tribes said this? The ten northern tribes, just as God had foretold. So the split has occurred. And now we really get into the meat of his story, the heart of it. 1 Kings chapter 12, let's jump to verse 25. We're not reading every single verse, but I encourage you 
to, to go back home this afternoon and spend some more time reading through these passages. We're kind of flying over at 5,000 feet the story of Jeroboam. You're going to see some powerful lessons today. Verse 25 of chapter 12, Then Jeroboam, he's now king, he fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself, he's thinking now in his heart, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Why was he thinking that? He was thinking that because he didn't have the temple in the northern part. So th at least three times a year, everybody was supposed to go down to celebrate the Passover and, and so forth and so on. And he's thinking, man, if the people keep going down there month after month and year after year, they're going to want to go back to the kingdom of the south. i got to do something. And he starts to worry about the prosperity of his kingdom, and he starts to worry about his own physical safety. <clears throat> Verse 28, after seeking advice, he's getting advice, right? This again. The king made two golden calves. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, yeah except, not except one this time. We got two. Two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's too far, friends. We're going to set up two centers of influence, two places of worship. He said, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And this is powerful. I checked in the Hebrew. This is exactly what Aaron said to the people when he presented the golden calf to them. Literally, every dot, every punctuation part is the exact same uh, past a certain point in the phrase. Here are your gods which brought you out of the land of Egypt, O Israel. You'd think he would realize that's not a good plan, right? Because how did it work out when Aaron said that to the children of Israel at Sinai? It was, it was horrible. Moses came down eventually, smashes the Ten Commandments, and, and, a, and a plague starts out in the people. And, and people died. And people were killed. And it was a horrible, horrible scene. So it's so ironic that here Jeroboam, knowing what happened to Solomon, knowing why he is over ten tribes, it's so ironic that he would use the exact same language that was used before in rebellion against God. Here are your gods. He set up one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Verse 30, And this thing became a sin, and the people went even as far as Dan to worship the ones there. Then he also created his own holidays too. Verse 33, On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices in the altar he had built at Bethel. He said, well, yeah, you know, the people in the southern tribes, they've got the seventh month that's special to them, and the first month and the 15th day. I'm going I'm to choose the eighth month and the 15th day so that, so that they feel like there's something here for them. And the Bible says this thing became a sin for them. In doing this, he was literally leading thousands and perhaps millions uh, especially as we go into the future, he was leading 
thousands of people in rebellion against God, worshiping false gods. And these people died, almost certainly most of them died lost and separated from God because of his choices. Most of us don't have that much influence or power, but we've got to realize that every decision we make has ripple effects, whether for good or for bad. Sometimes we think that we can sin in a vacuum, not like a Hoover or, 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 or something like that. Sin, and there are no consequences that affect anybody else. But every time we rebel against God, every time we make bad decisions, there are always ways that it impacts other people. If even just through us and the lack of witness that we have when we're choosing to follow our own ways. I'm not a parent yet, but someday I hope to be a parent. And I realize this is a scary thing, launching into parenthood or grandparenthood. Because those little young people, they look to you. They see what you're doing. And if they see that you're compromising your faith, compromising with, with what God says, it leaves an impression in their hearts and lives that it's okay for them to do it too. Now I realize you can be a perfect parent and lose your kids. God lost Adam and Eve and God wasn't at fault there. But it just reminds me how solemn it is to live. It's a joyful thing to live, but it's also an awesome responsibility that we have. Every single choice we make, just like, just like our story here, every choice we make impacts other people. Why did Jeroboam do these things? He did it because he was worried about the future. So he was making compromise spiritually in the present to try and secure a better future for himself. It's never safe to compromise in the present in hoping to have a better future because what ends up happening is, our, uh, and, and we'll see this in Jeroboam's case, you lose out spiritually in the present and you lose out on your future as well. It's easy for us to say, yeah, God, I know, I know what you're saying to me here, but, but I'm dealing with a lot, and I just got to get through this, and then I'm gonna, really going to get serious about you later, God. God, I know, I know you say, I know you're calling me here, but just let me work through this, and then we can take care of that later on. But usually what ends up happening is later on we don't even care if we get the opportunity later on. The choices we make today shapes who we become tomorrow. Perhaps Jeroboam thought, well, let me just do this as a temporary measure, or let me just, or maybe he just didn't care. But certainly in his later life he didn't care. But it's interesting because we'll see evidence that all along he knew who God was. He knew who God was, but yet he had rung a bell that couldn't be unrung. Eventually, chapter 13 rolls around, and I thought about turning this whole chapter into its own separate sermon, but you're just going to have to read it on your own. But basically, here are the cliff notes. Here's the summary. Reader's Digest version. A man of God, he's not named, a man of God approaches one of these altars, and... He prophesies to the altar, and he says, Altar, 
And Jeroboam is right there because Jeroboam is going to make a sacrifice. He says, Altar upon you will the bones of the false priests be burned by Josiah. He prophesies a king that hasn't even been born yet. Josiah is going to burn the bones of the kings, uh, not of the king, of the false priests upon you. And you want to know if it happened? We'll get there. <laughs> or you can, you can cheat and you can look ahead. See what happens. And he said, and furthermore, as a sign that this is going to happen, the altar is going to split open and ashes will fall out. And Jeroboam didn't like this at all. He didn't like it at all. And he reaches out his hand towards the prophet. And all of a sudden, his hand shrivels, his arm shrivels, and it's stuck. He tries to pull it back in, and he can't force it. His hand is stuck. And he's freaking out, as anybody would, right? And so he says, please, please, man of God, pray for me that I'll be healed. I can't, I can't. And the man of God prays, and the hand goes back to normal. The arm returns to its original state. But he had seen the altar split open. He'd seen himself be healed. He knew it was a false system of worship, but he just said, I don't really care. And look at verse 33. 1 Kings 13, verse 33. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Verse 34, this was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. It's amazing. Sometimes we think that miracles will help convince people. And miracles can, can help convince people, but for some people, they don't care. They see it. All right, I'm still going to keep on doing my own thing. I've made my choice, and, and that's my choice. My life, my choice. And what's sad about this story and odd is that even the man of God, kind of by some trickery, kind of by ignoring God's word, even the man of God in this story, on his way home, he disobeys God, and eventually he dies too. So you don't have to, to be this evil person to be rejecting God. Even people in the church, even people who've prophesied for God in a moment of carelessness can lose their way. And we don't know. It, it may be that the man of God, even though he died, will be resurrected and, and taken to the kingdom. We, we don't know that for sure, but it's never safe. When we know something that's crystal clear, it's never safe to ignore it. I told you it was a pretty solemn story, huh? Uh, but this is needed. This is, this is for me. Uh, this is for me and perhaps for you also. So Jeroboam goes on with his life. Chapter 14 tells us about how his son gets sick. And it's interesting because he has all these false gods and these priests and so forth, but who does he send his wife to? But the real true prophet, Ahijah, who at the very beginning had given him ten parts of his robe, his cloak. He sends his wife disguised, because he doesn't want anybody to know, especially the prophet. Just disguised, and she goes into the prophet, who by this point is so old he can't even see. 
But God had said to him before she got there, there's somebody coming to see you, and it's the wife of Jeroboam. This is what you should say to him, or to her. So she walks in. She thinks nobody will recognize her. I wonder, you know, we have a lot of products and fancy wigs that can disguise people today, but I don't know that they had access to everything that we have, face masks and everything. I don't know what she was wearing, but anyhow, she's thinking he won't recognize me, and she, when she walks in, he's like, hey, wife of Jeroboam, what do you want? And she knew that couldn't be a good sign, right? And what we see in chapter 14 is the tragedy of the reality of, of Jeroboam's blatant rejection of God in spite of everything he knew to be true. The prophet says, I'm sorry, your son will not die. When you go back home, he's going to pass away. In fact, it's worse than that. Everybody in Jeroboam's family is going to be killed. What a burden that must have been for her when she goes walking home, enters the doorway, only to find out her son has just passed away. And again, we talked last week about um, often when God punishes us, it's simply him removing his protective hand from us, right? It was very common in those days for the next king to rise up if he was afraid that others were going to try and take his throne to kill off everybody in the family of the king before him. Um, so we shouldn't read this story as uh, necessarily God inspiring these things to happen, causing it directly, but God allowing it to happen, foreseeing it to happen. And that's exactly what happened. The son died. Shortly after this, the Bible describes in the story in 2 Chronicles, uh, the parallel account, it describes how Jeroboam goes to war against the southern kingdom. He has 800,000 troops and the southern kingdom has 400,000. So you'd think that he had good odds. But in the end... Half a million people from Jeroboam's army died. Just a tragic loss that never needed to happen. All those families that didn't need to be losing their loved ones. But the whole nation had said to God, we don't care. Remember last week we saw that those who really wanted to seek the Lord, they already moved. They went south to worship at the temple to follow the real place that God had set up to worship. These people had rejected God's influence. They said, we don't want it. We know you're a that God is real. We can see these prophets are, are speaking. And it's interesting because Jeroboam knew that this prophet could foresee the future, which is why he sent his wife to her. If you know that somebody can speak on behalf of God, but you don't care what God says, whew, that's rough. And you know what's easy? for us to point our fingers at Jeroboam. But if I'm honest with myself, I realize I do similar things. Anytime you know something to be right, but you say, uh, sorry God, whatever. He knew that God was God, but he chose not to serve him. He knew that God knew the future, but he didn't place his hand, his life, into God, into 
uh, God to be his future. He compromised spiritually today so that he could try to preserve his future tomorrow, but in the end he lost everything. And the Bible describes how he reigned for 22 years, but in the end he died. Uh, God put him out of his misery, in a sense. Again, not a, it's not the first story we tell, you know, in primary class or, or kindergarten class, because it's heavy, and, and, and it's kind of a depressing reality, but the benefit that God wants us to get from this is that we don't have to end up the same way. We may not have the same influence of Jeroboam, but every single one of us have an influence. We have an influence over our kids and our grandkids and our cousins and our brothers and our sisters, over our coworkers and our neighbors. We have an opportunity to let them see God being good through us. God doesn't promise to give us riches and wealth and all these things if we serve him. That may happen, but he promises us so many spiritual blessings along with other blessings now in this life and in the life to come. And he promises us help through our difficulties here in this life. So if there's anything good that can come from Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, from his story, it's that we can choose to live differently. Instead of knowing what's right, and choosing to go our own way instead, instead of knowing God knows the future, but ignoring it and not wanting to be a part of it, we can today say, yes, I will choose God's future for me. I will choose to enjoy life that's guilt-free, walking in the path of God. I will be an example to my kids, to my grandkids, to my friends, my neighbors. I will help point people to Jesus. What do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be notorious, known for your rejection and rebellion against God? Not me. If I want to be notorious, I want to be notorious for following after God. How about you? For obedience to Him, because that's the way of peace and happiness. That's the way of guilt-free living, experiencing God's blessings. And I don't know what He's saying to you today. Maybe something different to each one of us, but I want to be willing to follow him. How about you? Heavenly Father, here we are. Thank you for not just recording good stories in the Bible, but recording ones that are sad too, so that we can learn and turn, so that we can experience joy and peace with you in spite of challenges, instead of a life that's apart from you that goes down and down and down to destruction. Give us opportunities this week, this day, to be a blessing and an influence for you. Use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a happy Sabbath. And follow Jesus. Before you go, sorry. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. I, I just needed to mention this one thing. You know, for the last decade and a half, our church has had a Bible worker. And if you look around, you will see people who came in under the, the influence, okay, I'll use that word, thank you, 
of that Bible worker. And this year, because of budget restraints, um, we don't have a Bible worker, or at least we're, it's not budgeted. But as a church, we've decided to go ahead and have a Bible worker. So what does that mean? It means that outside of the budget, we're going to be asking for help to pay for the Bible worker. Now, I, I wanted to put it in, in, in this kind of a uh, venue. Every time one has been here, a couple has come in. And what's the price of a soul? You know, it's going to cost us $900 additional over the budget to do it. Now, I'm committed to doing this. But I'm not to church. You are. We are. And just $5 a, a month, $10 a month, just something can we, that we can put together so we can have a Bible worker. We should never, for here on out, be without a Bible worker. There's no reason. And God always makes a way. I, I didn't ask him to do this, by the way. So I'm sorry. That's all right. But Thank you. It's going to start. We're, we're going to, we're going to um, hire the Bible worker, get them going. But we, we need a place to stay, and we need to come up with $900 a month. I, I think our church can do that. Uh, can you commit with me on that? Because I'm going to commit to it. Thank you. Amen and amen.